Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. We've all got old stuff that we should toss, but an old 401k? Make sure it keeps working for you. A Fidelity Rollover IRA has no account fees or minimums to open. An easy-to-follow rollover process makes it simple to get started in under 15 minutes. Plus, you'll have access to a rollover specialist. Whether you've switched jobs or are just organizing your finances, learn more at fidelity.com slash rollover. Consider all your options and the applicable fees and features of each before moving your retirement assets. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Have you ever heard the idea that a goldfish has a three-second memory? Well, it's not true. In fact, goldfish are pretty remarkable. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this video out now of a goldfish essentially driving its own aquarium. A study out in February 2022 in behavioral brain research demonstrated that a fish can actually learn to use spatial navigation to navigate its own aquarium. I mean, you thought self-driving cars were weird? (laughs) What about fish driving cars? (laughs) Apparently, it's possible. So the lowly goldfish is actually a lot smarter than we think it is. But even for us humans, the mathematical mind remains a bit of a mystery. I mean, for some people, math just seems to come easily. And for others, it can be a lifetime struggle. We've had math educators on the show before, helping us understand how we can effectively teach children to love math, because so often it's taught ineffectually. Where am I going with this, you might be thinking? Well, Brian Butterworth is an emeritus professor of cognitive neuropsychology at University College London, and he's spent his career looking at the genetics and neuroscience of mathematical abilities and disabilities. And not just in humans. Because he's interested in the genes, he's also looked at mathematical abilities in other species. And now he's published a book, a culmination of his career of work called Can Fish Count? What Animals Reveal About Our Uniquely Mathematical Minds. Brian Butterworth, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So when we encounter little children, or if you have little children around, all the books, all the things we do tend to have, at least a lot of them, counting. You know, (laughs) we count how many ducks are on the page, and there's all these songs about counting. and I thought for a long time that one of the reasons why we start so early, you know, it's one of the first things we talk to babies about, is because math is hard and we need to get an early start and get them going on it because this is something that, you know, is going to require a lot of training. But reading your book made me think if actually it's the opposite, 
that kids will count and it's something they just do and that we want to engage with them in a behavior that they would do anyway. I mean, what do you think about that? I I think that's a very good point. I think in in the book, I I point to some studies that show that even infants, even infants indeed in the first week of life, are sensitive to the number of things around them and that they they will notice uh, changes in the number of objects on the screen, for example. They look longer when the number of things on the screen changes. Um, There's even a nice experiment by a Parisian uh, scientist, uh, Veronique Isard, who shows that um, they notice when there's a mismatch, or indeed a match, between the number of sounds that they hear and the number of things that they can see on the screen. And this, again, is in the first week of life. And indeed, um, Karen Wynn, now at Yale, has shown that uh, even kids age six months are able to do some kinds of calculations. They can add one, they can subtract one, and uh, you show them an addition. For example, you show them a stage with two dolls on it, and then you conceal the stage from them, and then they will see another doll go behind the screen if when the screen comes down there aren't three dolls then the baby will look longer so somehow they've generated an arithmetical expectation in their head there's not question just of what they can see but it's what's in their head and what they can calculate so yeah um, babies and indeed other creatures will try and extract numerical information from the environment it's so interesting to think about. Uh, and, you know, yet there's this there's other view that that everything is math, that the universe is math, that all the secrets of the universe, you know, are related to math. And so, you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what the, the fact that there seems to be some kind of innate numerosity or, or however we want to describe what we're talking about, sort of counting. Well, long ago, Pythagoras said that all his numbers, or at least he's alleged to have said that, and many other uh, scientists have said much the same sort of thing in the centuries later. And if that's right, that at least a lot of it is numbers, then being able to make an assessment of how many things there are is actually useful for you um, if you live in the universe, which is numbers. Uh, Whether you're a baby or an adult human, or a fish, or a, a spider, uh, numbers are going to be important to you. That brings us to this other notion, I think, that a lot of students who first study neuropsychology or even general psychology, you know, this this finding early on in, in the research of kind of um, the neuroscience of math, that there is a part of the parietal lobe that is dedicated to arithmetic or counting, and if you damage it, you can have like a very specific deficit, a dyscalculia, an inability to, I guess, calculate. Can you tell us a little bit about that early work and sort of what 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 we actually know now is true about that particular region? Well, what we knew a hundred years ago was that there's a part of the parietal lobe which, if damaged, can affect your numerical abilities doesn't affect your language, uh, doesn't affect your memory, it just affects numbers. And this was discovered by a Swedish neurologist with uh, over 100 
individual cases that he'd studied. Uh, we rediscovered that fact uh, when we were looking at patients at uh, uh, the National Hospital for Neurology in London, and we found that patients with damage to the parietal node had problems with numbers. If the parietal node was spared, other things could be very seriously affected, like language, but numbers uh, and calculation were spared. So we um, we started one guy who um, could barely speak, or he couldn't write, and he could he his speech was just uh, stereotype phrases. He couldn't understand very much of what you said to him, yet he was able to do written calculations, multi uh, multi digit addition, multi digit subtraction, multi digit multiplication and division. That was all spared. That's because his parietal lobe was spared. But other parts of the brain that dealt with language, they were quite seriously affected by a degenerative uh, brain condition that this unfortunate man had. And do we see the opposite as well, where people who seem to have a particularly prodigious ability to count, you know, the the, the kind of almost just super counters, people that can just do remarkable feats of arithmetic, do we see more gray matter in this part of the parietal lobe? I mean, is there any... What's that story? Uh, <laughs> well, of course, there's, mu- there's much less research on this. Uh, one thing we do know is that professional mathematicians and prodigious calculators still use the parietal lobe. It's all based on the same parts of the parietal lobe. But what, they, uh, what some of them at any rate do is they recruit other parts of the brain to do some of the difficult stuff. So, for example, they might recruit another part of the brain to increase the, the span of their working memory. So if you've got a complicated calculation which involves several steps, then your normal, or my normal, working memory wouldn't be able to handle it. And for these prodigious calculators, that's probably true as well. So what they do is they, they recruit another part of the brain to do it. I think one of our papers, we said it, it's a bit like your random access memory is rather limited. I mean, uh, when I wrote this, it was very limited uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Nowadays, it's much, much bigger. So you might want to, for example, recruit some of your hard drive so you can offload some of the stuff that would be in random access memory and then retrieve it later when you need it. And that seems to be what at least uh, some uh, prodigious calculators do. So they kind of like set aside some of the information that they can pull from later instead of trying to hold all these numbers in mind. That's right. But of course, they also have an enormous store of number facts. Uh, far, yeah, I mean, I know my multiplication tables to 12. I was brought up in England, not just to 10. But they have tables of multiplications, you know, up to many digits and square roots and squares and, and, and such like. So they can retrieve all this information in a way that I, for example, couldn't. Um, because they, they love numbers. They work terribly hard at uh, learning all this numerical stuff, and so they can retrieve it when they need it. All right. So we have evidence that at least some aspects of numerosity may be innate or at least come online very early in the human brain. We have evidence that there is a particular part of the human brain that seems to be involved in in, in these skills. We're slowly working our way towards the fish <laughs> in a kind of meandering journey. But the next step would be, well, what about genetics? 
So where do genetics fall in on in, in this explanation? Are there genes that can predict a person's mathematical abilities or other ways in which our brain engages in counting? I'm really sorry you asked me that. <laughs> because we, we, at the moment, don't know. I mean, what we do know from twin studies is there seems to be a substantial genetic component to your numerical abilities. There's some estimates put it at about 30%. So 30% of your of the range of abilities in human numeracy is genetic. What the genes are, we don't yet know. Uh, there have been a number of attempts to do what are called genome-wide association studies, but they haven't really come up with anything which, in my view, is really convincing. Uh, there's a, a study, I think, about to begin in St Andrews in Scotland, led by uh, Sylvia Parrucchini, a brilliant uh, Italian geneticist, uh, and she's going to look very seriously in, into this problem. Another way of looking at it is to find an animal model of numerical abilities, and this is where fish come <laughs> Uh, so we actually have a shortcut here to fish. <laughs> okay, the back door. So uh, fish like to swim in in shoals, a little fish, because it reduces the risk of predation. And so they like to swim in larger shoals than smaller shoals, that is, shoals with more fish in. In the laboratory, you can, um, you can figure out how good they are at making a numerical discrimination between shoal A and shoal B. And in fact, they can learn to approach an abstract pattern with a certain number of objects on it. So they can learn to go to an abstract pattern with six objects on it, as opposed to an abstract pattern with three objects. They can do this quite well. We've done it, and they seem to be able to do this from birth. So it's it's an innate capacity in in these little fish. So where does genetics come in? Well... There's a, a species of fish called zebrafish because of its stripes, and uh, the genome for the zebrafish has been established. And what's more, you can manipulate the genome so you can get variants of these little zebrafish uh, which have a different, a genetic difference of interest. And you can see whether the genetic in- difference of interest affects their numerical abilities. And that's the project that we're involved in at the moment. And this is being led in London uh, by my colleague Caroline Brennan in her very extensive fish lab. And um, ask me again next year, and I may be able to identify a few genes that are involved in, in numerical abilities in fish and humans. Because some of, some of the genes, some of the fish genes, are genes that we have, of course, or some paradox of them, something rather similar. So we might be able to make an inference about why some fish and some people are not so good at numbers. But you also make the good point in the book that just because, you know, another species can uh, do something that humans can do doesn't mean that we have the same 
evolutionary underpinnings as to as to how that is. So and I think this is a really important point to make, especially as we do more comparative psychology and talk about other animals, because I think this this often gets conflated, right? In that like, well, if this other animal species can do it, that must mean that it was somehow we have the same evolutionary origins uh, of this particular task. So, so tell, talk a little bit about the pitfalls um, in, in those kinds of interpretations. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's sometimes called convergent evolution. So birds can fly and have wings. Bees can fly and have wings, but uh, birds' wings didn't evolve from bees' wings or from some common ancestor of bees and birds. So that for, for, vet, for independent reasons, they both found it useful to be able to fly. And, and it, it's entirely possible that this is true for us ourselves and other creatures as well. In the case of primates, we've got a pretty good idea that there's a common ancestor or a common ancestral system that we share with monkeys, chimpanzees, and uh, and ourselves. But when you get to creatures that don't have a neocortex, like birds or fish or insects, all of whom can do counting and calculation, it's not clear whether there's convergent evolution because it's you know it's useful for ants to be able to count their steps or bees to be able to count landmarks or birds to be able to calculate uh, the routes to and from their nest or, or, or whether there's some um, some genetic basis that has enabled these creatures to build similar mechanisms to our own. So we don't know the answer to that. So your original question about, you know, the genetics is really, is really critical here. And, um, this is why we do the fish work. Um, we probably, well, um, that will give us at least a clue. We hope it will give us at least a clue. Of course, fish have very different brains for us. So even if we find a gene that seems to be relevant to numerical abilities in humans and in fish, it doesn't. That's only part of the story. We also want to know how the fish brain does the computation because it doesn't have a neocortex. So it, it does it in a different part of the brain. So we have to try and figure out all these complicated relations. We don't know what it is in the case of the um, in the case of fish yet. In the case of birds, which don't have a neocortex, um, they just have a reptilian brain. It's claimed that another part of the bird brain, the pallium, is kind of equivalent to the neocortex and is a kind of ancestral version of neocortex. Now, this is way beyond my pay grade, so I, I'm not sure whether, whether that, that's true or not. We do know that in the case of frogs, for whom counting is extremely important in their mating game, we know which bits of the brain are doing the counting. We know it's in uh, in a, an area of the brain called the inferior colliculus in the in this particular species of frog. Now, the inferior colliculus in in these frogs and in humans is an auditory system because what these frogs are counting are croaks or, or chucks, more technically, uh, that other frogs are making. And uh, when you do, when you're counting, say, notes in a bar. You're using your inferior colliculus. And my inferior colliculus, at least compared to the frog, is really inferior. I mean, I can't do it nearly as well as they can. And they're counting very, very rapid chunks. 
So we know that in, in the frog, it's done in, in, a, in a really di- very different part of the brain to what we find in humans. I mean, that's what I found so interesting, so so mind-opening about your book is that, you know, we I sort of had this sense that, okay, it's in the we've got this area for math and the parietal lobe, and okay, so like case closed. We know what we need to know. But you, as you point out, you know, these, yeah, these, these inferior colliculi where we have auditory reflexes, you know, contain a kind of count and it's reproduced everywhere. And I just love the idea that for frogs, math is sexy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So just going back to an earlier point, females find frogs that can count large numbers really attractive. So uh, I'm just using this as a possible incentive for boys to become better at math. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that, you know, one of the reasons musicians, uh, you know, can be considered highly attractive is because they can count, they can hold a beat, uh, you know. So so let's talk a little bit more about, is there anything that we do know if we look back into, I mean, I guess you can't really tell from the fossil record what animals could count or what they couldn't. But I wonder if there if there's any sort of speculation as to when a version of this ability might have is it something that we think was probably along with any other sensory process like you know sensing photons of light or sound waves you know hearing is this is is counting as basic as that or do you think that it was something that comes later on in our evolutionary history? And is there, is there any way we can know the answer to that question? Well, I'm, I'm afraid I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Clearly, you've got to have some kind of sensory apparatus in order to be able to extract numerical information from the environment. Now, which comes first, the, the, um, the sensory apparatus or the counting apparatus is, uh, is unclear, but they probably came together, it would be my guess. So, uh, yeah, you can't tell from the fossil record, but you, you do know that very, very ancient creatures with very ancient lineages like uh, insects uh, and other arthropods can do it. So probably it goes way, way back. And it's also been argued that there are plants that can do it. What? <laughs> what? How do plants This is amazing. This, this, <laughs> yeah, um, well, the Venus flytrap can count at least to two. And David Attenborough has claimed on one of his TV programs, a very beautiful demonstration of counting to two in the Venus flytrap, is that they can count to five as well. And this is important because, you know, the Venus flytrap is called the Venus flytrap because it it traps insects and then devours them by secreting an acid that devours them. But lots of things will fall onto the Venus flytrap and so it has to be able to distinguish, you know, you know, a leaf that falls onto it or a drop of rain that falls onto it from something edible that falls onto it. And the idea here is that if two of the hairs that detect movement on the surface of the of the plant are activated within a certain time interval, it's about twenty or thirty seconds. Then I, I, I was going to say the plant thinks, but that probably is <laughs> a slight exaggeration. Then the plant will 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 close, and apparently, if something else happens, then it will secrete acids in order to digest the uh, uh, the insect. Because the idea is that the thing moves, and so it would hit more than one of its sensors. Yeah, that's right. So the, the fly the fly will will trip to if it's moving around on the surface and the fly up. It'll, 
it'll uh, it'll trip two hairs or five travel and then close. So it's possible. But you know, as I say, insects and you know the common ancestor of the insects and the human is very, very a really long time ago, pre-Cambrian. And it might go back even farther than that. It's also claimed that bacteria count. This is really weird. But you need really millions of bacteria to get together before something happens, like, for example, they light up as a, these particular bacteria that emit, emit light. So the idea that a single cell creature can count to a million seems to me to be. Oh, I see. Strange sense. A strange sense of uh, counting. Huh, I see. So so it's the idea that when there's a, a critical mass of these bi- bioluminescent bi- bacteria, they will light up. And if there isn't, they won't. Oh, that's really interesting. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. It's that time again. Time to start thinking taxes. But this tax smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. It sort of goes back to a lot of the work about, you know, colonies like ant colonies or, you know, other insect colonies that are smarter as a colony than any individual within that colony, you know, in in, in that way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, though, about some of these ideas about a kind of general way. I, you, I, I, the, the one that comes to mind is the accumulator theory. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of what are these ideas and then where your research has, has taken us beyond them in terms of a kind of unifying theory of, of, of how counting might work in a nervous system. Well, the, the accumulator theory is, is quite old and actually goes back to animal work with uh, rats back in, in the 80s. And uh, the idea is that in your brain, you have a, a an accumulator, and what happens is that every time you experience something relevant, then it adds a certain quantum of energy to the accumulator, and so the, if you like, the level of activity in the accumulator will be uh, proportional to the number of things that you've experienced, be monotonically proportional. That is, keeps going up. And not only that, it goes up linearly so that you might see 
a lot of what you might be interested in. Let's say and the, the example I give in, in, the, uh, in the book is sheep and goats. Take a biblical example. Now, you want to count the sheep and not the goats. Now, the sheep come in all different sizes, and it might be baby sheep and rams and ewes, but you want to count one for each of those. So they come in different sizes and different locations in, in the field, but you want to give, if you like, equal weight or equal energy to each of the sheep that you count, and that means that the level of the accumulator goes up. And, uh, I mean, this is an entirely standard uh, type of mechanism that you find in the brain, and um, it has lots of interesting properties, like, for example, the brains are noisy, and so the variance in the how noisy each increment is accumulates as well. So when you've got lots of things as quite a lot of noise, and you've got a few things there's rather little noise. And so somehow you've got to find a way of uh, calibrating the accumulator so that each time you're counting sheep, uh, you want to get to about the same level if they're the same number of sheep. And if you're a, a, a child learning to count with words, you need not only to be able to calibrate, to link each level of the calibration to a particular word. So Round about here it's three, round about there it's five, round about there it's seven, and so on. So it, it's a very simple idea, and you can model it on a computer, and it doesn't really need very many uh, virtual neurons to do. So, for example, my colleague Lars Chipka has modeled it for the bee, and uh, you need basically four virtual neurons, that's all. So it's a, it's a very small device. Counting is really easy. The difficult part is choosing what to count. Now, we can count almost anything, but bees probably can't count almost anything. And uh, they can count the things that are relevant for them, like uh, landmarks to indicate distance or petals on a, on a flower, so they know which flowers are, are the ones that are going to be most rewarding to get pollen from, uh, but probably not much else. And whether they actually use the same accumulator to accumulate landmarks and to accumulate petals is still unclear. So we don't really know how the bee brain does it yet. But I'm sure that, you know, in the next few years, this whole area will become much, much better defined. So the accumulator mechanism of these creatures will be well defined. There's some evidence for accumulators in the human brain as well in the parietal lobe. You'll be surprised to hear. But there are other mechanisms that are important. So when you've got to a particular level in the human brain, you want to be able to map that onto a particular numerosity. So you know, it gets up to about here, it's three. So you need to transfer that information to what's sometimes called a number neuron. This is something that's been discovered in the parietal lobe of monkeys by Andreas Nieder. And uh, so it just turns out that the accumulator neurons in the human brain are very close to the number neurons that uh, Nida has discovered in the intraparietal subvus, that groove in the parietal lobe. Nobody's yet shown how these two neural systems connect up, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's, uh, there is a, a serious connection. So when, when you get to a particular level in the accumulator, then it, it activates uh, a particular number neuron 
and there's a sequence of them tuned to particular numerosities, at least up to about five or six, as Nita showed. Previously on this show, we've had um, Dean Bonamano talking about biological clocks and how we have a number of kind of mechanisms to track, you know, either sequences or, or to, to sort of to sort of keep a beat. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how what we know about these these sort of biological clocks and maybe even, you know, the, the genes that we do know, Tim and Per, that that sort of are related to um, our circadian rhythms and how that relates to our our accumulator or this parietal region, you know, how, how does all of this come together? Are they just separate mechanisms that, you know, evolve independently? Or do we, you know, do we have a kind of central math circuitry? Well, the fact that there are these timing mechanisms is encouraging because if there are timing mechanisms, uh, mechanisms which are controlled by particular genes like Tim and Per that you mentioned, then they're probably number genes as well. <laughs> because one of the things that uh, animals have to be able to calculate are frequencies and probabilities, which is time and number taken together. So, you know, one lives in hope that somebody will find the, the numerical equivalent, uh, equivalents of Tim and Per and some of the other timing genes and how they work together in order for the animal to make an estimate of frequency or, or, or probability, because, you know, animals have to know that. You know, how probable is it that I'm going to get attacked by an incoming lion? Oh, you know, that's really a way of saying, well, you know, I saw three lions yesterday, and uh, you know, they come around this time, and that's time and number taken together. And it's very important, because if, if you're outnumbered and the lions attack you, well, you know, that could be, uh, you know, one dead lion. Yeah, that's that's the way that you describe that lions can count is that they make decisions on in terms of or their behavior is affected by the number of other lions uh, that they encounter. So tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which mammals we, we've heard about the fish. You know, we we've talked a little bit about insects. We've kind of briefly mentioned birds. And I feel like we kind of maybe have an intuitive story going of like, well, you know, birds need to know where their nest is and how many things that they might have, you know, cached or insects obviously have, you know, a lot of sort of other insects to, to worry about if they're part of a colony or they need to find food, etc. But what about other mammals like lions? Let's assume the monkeys are close to humans. <laughs> we sort of get those. <laughs> but lions are, are, are pretty far removed. They are. And, of course, the problem with lions is that they're big, dangerous, and expensive. Um, <laughs> so uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you study lions, particularly you know, to find some ecologically useful information about their counting ability? Well, Karen McComb, now at Sussex University, uh, really was the pioneer here. So lions are territorial, uh, and they live in prides, and uh, they sometimes get attacked by other prides. And um, if you've got two groups of lions from pride A and pride B, if, if B outnumbers A, A will back off. And so it's quite important for B to know whether they outnumber A. And typically, I'm told, I haven't studied this myself, uh, typically, uh, lion invading lions invade at dusk or at night, and they roar when they approach the territory of another prime. 
So the defenders uh, have to look around and see how many of themselves there are and how many foreign roarers they can hear. And so they're making a decision which is actually very abstract because the representation of the intruders is auditory and the representation of themselves is probably visual, maybe also smell. So they're making a comparison of number across two, these two modalities. So it has to be quite abstract. And on the whole, this works. If the defenders outnumber the intruders will back off. And if the intruders outnumber the defenders, then the defenders will back off. So no one gets hurt. Sometimes they'll get hurt because if there are cubs, the defenders will always attack. Um, so this is a prudent calculation of defense by, um, by the defending pride. Yeah, yeah. Hearing, hearing that kind of an explanation makes me wonder whether species have evolved ways in which they deceive each other where it comes to messing up someone's count. Uh, so in terms of cross-species <laughs> deception, we have, of course, the famous story of Clever Hans, the, the horse that purportedly was doing all kinds of calculations, but instead was just really, you know, when, when he was tapping out the answer to a mathematical problem, was very carefully watching the body language of, uh, of someone else who was giving him a hint as to what the correct answer was. And so Nowadays, we remove the experimenter uh, from the room so that we can avoid those expectancy effects. But are there every, any stories of animals tricking other animals <laughs> in terms of the count? I mean, one, one idea that comes to mind is maybe in these um, fish shoals. Do they, do they ever try to seem more or less numerous to avoid predation? Well, th there's a question here of deceit, which means there's an intention to modify the perception of their own numerosity. Now, whether you want to ascribe intention to the fish is, I think, a very controversial issue. But one thing we do know is that the density of the shoal is important. So uh, it's not just number, it's also density. And it, you can, you know, in the lab, you can manipulate these independently. But uh, fish are more likely to join uh, a shoal of the same numerosity if it's more densely packed than if it's not. Now, whether this is a way of telling the predator, well, look, there are actually lots of us because we're densely packed, or whether it, you know, they, the little fish just like being closer together, I think this is for subsequent research to discover. So you end your book with a chapter um, called What Counts? And I'll, I'll take this opportunity to remind our listeners that Brian Butterworth's book, Can Fish Count? What Animals Reveal About Our Uniquely Mathematical Minds, um, is available now at booksellers everywhere. So, so what counts? And where are we going? What do you think are the frontiers now uh, and that, that this kind of research? What are the questions that you remain highly curious about? What should we count on in the future? <laughs> uh, yeah. So one of the issues I try and deal with here is, is the ancient philosophical issues of what are numbers. And I'm, I'm claiming, along with some philosophers, that there are numbers in the world. You know, you have two eyes, I have two eyes. The world would be very different if we had three eyes and uh, all three arms or three legs or whatever. And uh, so the, the two-ness of our eyes and legs 
is important and uh, and this is true from animals as well. So I, I think there are numbers in the world and I think even if numbers are abstract, which of course they are, we experience instances of those numbers, those abstract numbers. And this is a problem that goes back to Plato and um, I'm sure that philosophers don't agree about what the correct solution is, but I'm quite happy to have numbers as abstract and that we ex- uh, and therefore have no causal consequences. But what does have causal consequences are the instances of those of those particular numbers. Now, the other thing that I'm I'm working on, that's why I'm in Buenos Aires, is uh, kids who really have difficulty on basic number tasks. These are called dyscalculics. So they seem at birth to have some anomaly in their parietal lobe that prevents them learning arithmetic in the usual way. doesn't mean they could never learn it, but the usual ways of teaching them are not going to be very effective. Now, some of this will be inherited. So there may be genes that we don't know about yet that means that the, the parietal lobe doesn't uh, develop in quite the usual way. Some of it could be, conge- uh, could be congenital, but for non-genetic uh, reasons. So, for example, if the mother drinks too much alcohol during pregnancy, you get fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, which does affect numerical abilities, does actually create something very much like dyscalculia. So the first thing we, we're, what we're trying to do now is to develop a really effective, cheap, but actually free test that will distinguish kids who are bad on arithmetic uh, in the early years, in the first two or three years of school, because they're dyscalculic from kids who are bad at learning arithmetic for all the other reasons that kids are bad at learning something. And so we're, we're doing a large study here. We're going to be up to uh, 500 kids in the first three years of school by the end of the month, I hope. And this is just in, in, in Buenos Aires. But then we're going to, we want to then pilot this in uh, remote parts of uh, Argentina and Brazil and Spain and, and other countries, rural and uh, urban as well, public schools and private schools, so that we have a very clear picture of uh, how dyscalculics are different from uh, typical kids. So that's that's one thing that we're, we're we're doing. The next thing we're doing is we're trying to find out how their brains are different. Now, there have been a few studies on this already, but I think we could be looking at other aspects of brain function to have a clearer picture of what's going wrong. And the third, and far and away the most difficult problem, is how to persuade governments and educational authorities to recognize dyscalculia. Now, I've been banging on about this for about 20 years with very little effect in Britain. Here we might, here in Argentina, we might be doing a bit better because we had a, a meeting with the minister earlier this week. So who knows what's going to happen here. There is a bit of activity in, in Britain. America has the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which specifically mentions this calculia. The extent to which this is actually effective in helping kids, identifying kids then helping them, is unclear at the moment. So the difficult task is the scientific one. The difficult task is the, we like the political one, getting recognition and help for these sufferers because they they do suffer. You know they go to school 
and they can't do what all the other kids can do, and they think they're stupid, and they get very anxious, and their life chances are, are very profoundly affected. They're not going to get good jobs. They're probably going to end up, uh, some of them are going to end up criminals because they can't get good jobs. Some of them are going to get sick because of their anxiety, either physically or mentally. And we've been noticed from surveys, and I'm not making it up. So how can we intervene early to help these kids to understand what's going on and really to help these kids and get help at a national as well as a local level? Well, you've come on to the right podcast, because we like to say that <laughs> Inquiring Minds is where science and society collide. So I encourage our listeners to take up the torch. And, um, you know, now we understand why, how we can go from fish counting to making a real difference in the lives of a, of a minority but significant number of, of people who, who suffer. So thank you, Brian Butterworth, uh, for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So that's it for another episode. Look out for those goldfish driving vehicles coming to a city near you. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you next time. We've all got old stuff that we should toss, but an old 401k? Make sure it keeps working for you. A Fidelity Rollover IRA has no account fees or minimums to open. An easy-to-follow rollover process makes it simple to get started in under 15 minutes. Plus, you'll have access to a rollover specialist. Whether you've switched jobs or are just organizing your finances, learn more at fidelity.com slash rollover. Consider all your options and the applicable fees and features of each before moving your retirement assets. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. 